15 years have passed since Jennifer's murder. A lot can change in 15 years. Jennifer's case needs to be back on people's minds and in people's everyday conversations. Together, we can do that because I have a voice and you have a voice too. We all have a voice and together we have a collective voice with more power, more influence, more reach than any of us alone. So let's use that collective voice to try to do something big. This is our call to action. So brainstorm with me, help guide this investigation and listen along as I try to find out who murdered Jennifer. I can't promise you that we'll solve this case, but I can promise you that it's going to get interesting. And I think you'll be glad you came along with me on my search for a murderer. So why are we doing this? Because maybe, just maybe, we'll succeed. Welcome to Justice Delayed, the unsolved homicide of Jennifer Olson Servo. I'm Sharon Newman Edwards, your host, and you're listening to episode two, The Other Suspects. Your news, in your community. This is KRBC, Abilene's local news at 10. Good evening and thanks for joining us for your local news at 10. I'm John McMichael. Thevin is out tonight. Leading our broadcast tonight, one mother still has hope and is looking for answers, hoping that the person behind the murder of her daughter 15 years ago will be found. It was on this day in 2002 when 22-year-old Jennifer Servo was found dead in her Abilene apartment. She worked as a reporter for KRBC at the time with hopes of a long career in journalism. Here's the facts first of what police have on this cold case. Detectives found Servo sexually assaulted, strangled, and killed in her apartment. Her ex-boyfriend, Ralph Sepulveda, remains the only publicly named suspect, and a co-worker of hers was named a person of interest. But to this day, no arrests have been made. Now, Jennifer's death impacted everyone close to her, her father creating a website to keep her memory and story alive, while her mother still has not lost hope that this cold case could finally close. On Friday, I had the chance to speak with Jennifer's mom and Taylor County officials as they continue their efforts to get answers. Take a look. This is Jennifer Servo, and in 2002, she was a good-spirited reporter for KRBC. A lot of times she'd, you know, make fun, report on fun things for the news, not just all the bad stuff. The festivities going on out here aren't just fun for the whole family, they're also fun for the family pets. But just a few months after starting to work at KRBC, Jennifer Servo was murdered. One of our reporters was found dead in her apartment today. On September 16, 2002, Jennifer hadn't yet shown up for work. Her co-workers were worried. And then a call came in on the police scanner asking for a justice of the peace to come to the apartment complex where Jennifer lived. It was shortly after that that we heard the police call tone out possible DOA. And when that happened, I mean, um, it was just an incredibly, uh, just, it was a tragic scene. It really was. Anna just lost it. I mean, she fell to the floor just in this terrible scream. I've never heard a scream like it. Taylor County Judge Downing Bowles, anchor at KRBC at the time, remembers it all vividly and says it changed him and everyone in the station. And for the first time, I saw what it is like to be a family of a murder victim or a friend of a murder victim and it's an incredibly tragic thing um, when you see the emotional scars that are left behind. Fast forwarding to 2017, Sherry Abel hopes everyone remembers her daughter Jennifer the same way she does. Just as her sweet self, she was just 
sun loving. Okay, we just missed her so much. And even though it's been 15 years, leaving more questions than answers, Miss Abel still knows that this case will someday be closed. I, I do believe that it will be solved. She hopes that either someone with information will finally come forward. Or, or the killer himself will finally come forward and confess. And that's what I'm hoping for. Reporting from the flight line at Dias Air Force Base, I'm Jennifer Servo, KRBC 9. I also reached out to Abilene Police once again about the case. We're told there are no significant developments at this time. That was the news report about Jennifer that KRBC 9 aired last Saturday to mark 15 years since she was murdered. I want to thank Travis Ruiz, news director of KRBC, for personally sending me that clip to use in the podcast. In last week's episode, we also marked 15 years since Jennifer was murdered. This Saturday, September 23rd, exactly 15 years and one week after she was murdered, Jennifer would have turned 38 years old. Jennifer was off to an amazing start in Abilene, and she had big dreams of being the next Katie Couric. We'll talk about that and more in future episodes when I have Jennifer's mom, Sherry Servo Abel, on the podcast to talk about Jennifer. So I said in the first episode that we're starting this investigation over from the very beginning. We're going to look at and brainstorm all the possibilities we can think of. We're laying out these theories not to engage in random speculation, but to logically take a look at them. Then we'll look at the known evidence and try to rule out the theories that don't make any sense are just too far-fetched, or have little or no evidence supporting them. So what are those theories? On the surface, it seems like there are quite a few that the police must have considered in the early days of their investigation. There are two main categories of suspects, in my opinion. Someone Jennifer knew, or someone she didn't. As far as people Jennifer knew in Abilene, you have the ex-boyfriend, and then there's Jennifer's male colleague, whom she may or may not have been dating, and who was the last known person to see her alive. There's the possibility that it could have been an employee from her apartment complex, a tenant in her apartment complex, or someone else from her new job. That last one is especially doubtful, and there's never been any evidence of it. But those are pretty much the only people that we know Jennifer knew in Abilene. Remember, she had been in Abilene just short of two months when she was murdered. Since we're starting over from the beginning, we're going to look into the possibility that it could also have been someone Jennifer did not know. In this category, there's the possibility of a stalker, a random person, or, as posited at one time, a serial killer targeting young, female TV reporters. So let's break each of these theories down. We'll start with the theories about people Jennifer did not know. Starting here allows me to give you a lot of the background material that will really put things into context when we start talking about the people Jennifer knew. Let's start with the stalking theory. It's true that Jennifer was an on-air TV news reporter for KRBC in Abilene. Now Abilene, for those of you who don't know, is a relatively small town, especially by Texas standards. We have three of the ten largest cities in the United States. According to censusviewer.com, Abilene had just short of 116,000 people in the year 2000 and just over 117,000 people in 2010, a change of only 1,099 people in 10 years. 
So we can pretty easily extrapolate the population of Abilene in 2002 to be somewhere between 116 and 117,000 people, probably closer to the former. According to Wikipedia, KRBC's coverage area was mainly Abilene and the surrounding towns. So even though the coverage area of KRBC in 2002 was probably well over the population of Abilene itself, it was still a relatively small market. Jennifer herself thought of Abilene as a stepping stone in her career, a place to make her start and get more live reporting experience. Jennifer lived very near the station. I've driven it, and it takes about five minutes, and I got stopped at a long light during my drive. I've since discovered a little shorter route from her apartment to her work, which I haven't been back to time yet. Suffice it to say, it's a really quick drive. I did a recorded drive test, but I'm not going to play the whole thing because, frankly, the sound quality isn't great on the later parts of it, and on top of that, my recording device stopped about two-thirds of the way there. But except for that long stoplight, it was an uneventful drive, and like I said, it took just about five minutes. Here's the beginning of that drive, where I'm describing Jennifer's apartment complex and a little bit of her neighborhood. So I'm sitting here in the parking lot of Jennifer's apartment complex around the back side of building four, the building Jennifer lived in, because Jennifer lived on the back side of that building, away from the street, facing the inner part of the maybe trio of buildings, maybe four buildings here kind of form, not a courtyard, but it's a parking lot back here. Um, we're going to drive from here over to KRBC to see how long it takes Jennifer to get to work. I have it plugged into my GPS and it says it is 1.8 miles away. It's 12.50 p.m. right now and it says we're going to arrive at 12.55 p.m. complex if a bit older which we know because it was here 15 years ago when Jennifer moved in there's several tall trees and some pretty pink crepe myrtle growing here seems like it would have been a, a nice place then and, and that it even is now Turning left onto Texas Avenue, coming out of Jennifer's apartment complex. Driving past Building 4, the front of Building 4. And along the rest of the complex, which goes all the way up to, on the street side, Building 19. So it's a fairly large 
complex, maybe um, four apartments in the smaller buildings, like Jennifer's. Some of the buildings look larger and I'm sure have more apartments in them than, than that. We're coming up here and we're going to take a left on US 277. toward the TV station, KRBC9. When I got there, I drove right into the parking lot, all the way around to the back where the employee parking is, and then made a full circle around the building and exited out the same driveway I came in. There's also a parking area clear in the back that I didn't enter. It would be an easy place for someone to park and just watch the employees come and go. At night, it'd be easy to watch someone walk out the back of the building get in their car and follow them home. I don't know if they would have had security guards patrolling that parking lot back in 2002. All that being said, what are the real chances of a viewer becoming so obsessed with Jennifer in the less than two months that she was working there that he would follow her home and kill her? I think it's pretty slim, especially given what we know about the physical evidence. There was no forced entry. There was no unknown DNA found in her apartment that we know of. No unexplained fingerprints, hairs, or fibers that we're aware of. Although, as I think about it, that apartment must have been lived in prior to Jennifer renting it. Why wasn't there a lot of unknown DNA in her apartment? That may be a topic for another day. Jennifer was known by her friends and colleagues to be very safety conscious. We also know she had rented a mailbox in Abilene for this very reason. Jennifer didn't want her mail coming to her apartment. According to Sherry Servo Abel, Jennifer's mother, this was a conscious decision Jennifer made because of her position as a news reporter. Jennifer was taking steps to protect herself. At least one friend has said that Jennifer wouldn't have opened her door to a stranger. Another indication that Jennifer worried, or at least thought about the possibility of being stalked, either then or in the future, was that she was said to have been showing an article around the news station in the weeks before her death about a news reporter being stalked. In an upcoming episode, I'll try to get to the bottom of whether or not this can be substantiated. Another piece of information that lends some credibility to the stalking theory is a story that Jennifer's male colleague would tell police a couple of days after she had been found. He told police that on the last night of her life, while they were running errands, Jennifer told him that she thought they were being followed. He stated that he told her she was imagining things. Was she? Or did this exchange actually happen at all? Remember, that would mean that after thinking that they were being followed, Jennifer had driven home alone from that colleague's apartment and presumably walked from the parking lot to her apartment in the dark. Although I'm sure the apartment complex must have had outdoor lights back then. And she made it to her apartment alone safely. Was there a car following them that night? There are a couple of other factors to consider here. Jennifer's ex-boyfriend had sold his car before moving to Abilene and had arrived in a rented vehicle or truck with his belongings. So this ex-boyfriend didn't have a car when he moved to Abilene and Jennifer's friends have said she told them she hadn't heard from him in three weeks or so before her death. When did he purchase the car? And would Jennifer have even known what his new car looked like? It might have been fairly easy for him to follow her at night in a vehicle she wouldn't recognize. 
They had agreed to stay friends, and I haven't read or been told by anyone that Jennifer expressed a fear of her ex-boyfriend after they broke up. But was someone watching her? Here's the other thing. Remember the approximately hour-long phone call Jennifer had after she got home after midnight? The one I referred to in the first episode? She was speaking to her former college boyfriend, whom she had dated for a few years before. He was still in Montana, and they had been making plans to see each other in the next several months. And she never mentioned anything about thinking she had been followed that night? Not a word. What does that mean? I guess it could mean a lot of things. Now, Jennifer's new colleagues have said that she made fast friends with a group of them, and she probably would have been seen, at least to some extent, out and about in Abilene. According to more than one coworker, a lot of them were around the same age as Jennifer, and she fit right in. They all seemed to spend a lot of time together, going to the fair, bars, and on short trips in numbers varying from just two of them to a whole group. We also know she must have done grocery shopping, and she went to Walmart at least once, and probably several times. She was at Walmart just hours before her murder to pick up cat food while her colleague picked up groceries. Someone could have recognized her there and followed her home. But would she really have opened her door to a stranger after midnight? Her friends and family all agree that she wouldn't have. Jennifer had started working at the television station on July 22nd, and she was murdered on September 16th. That's an awfully small window for that theory. What about the fellow tenant theory? Someone from her apartment complex who had seen her around the pool or whom she had said hi to in passing could have been the perpetrator. If someone knocked on her door and said they were another tenant, a neighbor, would Jennifer have opened her door to them? I don't know the answer to that. What about a random person theory? I think the circumstances under which this would have had to happen tie in with the serial killer theory in terms of how they might have gained access to Jennifer's apartment after she had already made it home safely for more than an hour. If we accept as fact, and I do, that Jennifer wouldn't have opened her door to a stranger, then how could this have happened? Police have maintained that there was no forced entry to Jennifer's apartment. We know that Jennifer had picked up a used coffee table from a friend that evening and then gone shopping at Walmart, where we know that she picked up cat food. I don't know if she purchased anything else. So when she got home, there were at least those two things in her car, and probably her purse too, which has still never been found. Had Jennifer had her hands full or forgotten the cat food? Is that when the phone rang? Although I'm still trying to figure out for sure who called whom that night. Had she decided to slip down and get the coffee table out of her car to try it out in her new apartment after she got off the phone? We know she didn't have to work the next day, so it's possible. But would she have, at that time of night, and knowing how careful she was? Did Jennifer just cross paths with the wrong person? Was it a crime of opportunity? The possibility of a link between Jennifer's murder and that of Ann Presley, a 26-year-old news anchor in Little Rock, Arkansas, who was beaten and raped in her home in 2008, was explored. Ms. Presley died a few days later at the hospital. Her purse was missing, as was Jennifer's. That theory was later dismissed, and Ms. Presley's murderer is serving life in prison. In fact, several items were also missing from Jennifer's apartment. Her purse, as I stated, her cell phone, 
and several DVDs. So could someone have sneaked into her apartment if Jennifer left the door unlocked while she ran down to her car for just a few moments? Maybe the door didn't fully close and she didn't realize it until it was too late. Could she have encountered her attacker outside and been forced back inside her apartment? Her cell phone and credit cards were never used after her murder. And although Jennifer's murder was only the second one that year in Abilene, the first one had also occurred in Jennifer's apartment complex shortly before she moved to town. That killer, however, was in jail at the time of Jennifer's murder, so there's no connection there, according to authorities. So those are the theories about a perpetrator unknown to Jennifer. Now let's talk about the DNA. Investigators collected fingerprints, blood, and DNA evidence, as well as carpeting and bedding from Jennifer's apartment. So why didn't the DNA solve this case? Apparently, there was no DNA from anyone who didn't have a reason to have been there in Jennifer's apartment. We know to some extent what that means. Remember that I told you last week that reports are that six people had their DNA sampled for comparison, but we only know who two of them are? According to a 2003 article by Katie Vine in Cosmopolitan Magazine, those two people were Jennifer's ex-boyfriend and her male colleague. Who were the other four? We don't know. We can only speculate. Maybe the apartment manager who found Jennifer. Maybe a couple of her female friends who had visited her apartment. The police were likely just trying to narrow down whose DNA belonged there and whose didn't. Since there's been no arrest in over 15 years, we can only conclude that all six of those people had a known reason to have been in Jennifer's apartment prior to her murder. Physical evidence didn't point to a specific suspect, but circumstantial evidence pointed to someone Jennifer knew, according to the lead detective on the case, next time on Justice Delayed. In the meantime, keep getting the word out about Jennifer's case. Post about Jennifer, share the podcast's promos in the first few episodes as they come out, Invite your friends and family to join our discussion group on Facebook. Post on Instagram or Twitter and use the hashtag Jennifer Servo or hashtag Solve Jennifer Servo's Murder. Follow us on Twitter at Justice Delayed P. That's Justice Delayed, followed by the letter P as in podcast, and on Instagram at Justice Delayed Pod. Email me with questions and ideas about additional avenues of investigation at Sharon at JusticeDelayedPod.com. By spreading the word about Jennifer's case, it increases the chance that we'll actually reach the people we need to reach, whoever they are, wherever they are. A lot can change in 15 years. If you know anything about Jennifer's case, or if you just think you might, contact me. I will get back to you. It can be anonymous if it needs to be. If you were even a small part of this case and you want your story told, contact me even if you think it's insignificant. Every piece of information helps. If you know someone who is part of this case, let them know about the podcast and encourage them to contact me and tell their story. You can call my dedicated voicemail line at 210-836-8680, or you can contact me any of the other ways noted in this episode. If you have a tip about this case, contact the Abilene Police Department at 325 Six seven three eight three three one, 
or Crime Stoppers at 325-676-TIPS. You can also find those phone numbers on our website. Or if you're uncomfortable contacting either of those agencies, contact me and I'll help get your information to the right people. If you liked this episode, and be generous, this was a tough one to put together, go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. If you thought it was just kind of eh, I encourage you to wait until we find our rhythm. Be sure to subscribe to our feed if you haven't already so you'll get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. And write a review, too, but only if you like us a lot. If you post a five-star review, I'll give you a shout-out on next week's episode. Speaking of shout-outs, we have a couple this week. My very first ever review, and a five-star review at that, was from MamaBear underscore TX. Thank you so much. I know who you are, and your opinion means a lot. I also had five-star reviews from ODP Friend and Kern 7 Thanks for your kind words. Right now, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Libsyn, and there are links to our episodes at the bottom of my justicedelayedpod.com website. If you have a favorite place to listen to your podcasts, let me know, and I'll put it at the top of our list to add. The next episode drops Thursday, September 28th, and we're going to talk about the rest of the possible theories in this case. Join me as I actively search for justice in the form of a murderer. Remember to participate in the brainstorming, send me suggestions for leads to pursue, ask questions, all on our Facebook discussion group, or just follow along as I try not to get into too much trouble. This has been a bit of a short episode, but I'm about to get into a lot of information about the main suspect of both the police and the family. So join me next Thursday for more about the unsolved case of Jennifer Olson Servo. Things are about to get interesting. Justice Delayed is a Numanity LLC production. I want to say thank you to Jennifer's family for being so helpful and cooperative throughout this process, even though it isn't easy to relive this kind of pain. All music for this episode is provided by Lee Rosevear. You can find his music at happypeppyrecords.ca. Our logo was created by Caitlin Spencer. My editor, web designer, and all-around tech expert is none other than my husband, David Edwards. I also want to thank Travis Ruiz, news director of KRBC, for the news clip featuring Jennifer's voice that we used in the show. My sources for this episode are detailed in the show notes as they were last week. Remember to send in any leads you think I should pursue or any questions you have about the case. This is Sharon, and I'll be back.